Hey, Jen. Hey, Tina. You ready? I'm ready. Okay, here we go. You're listening to Speaking of Racism. Welcome to the Speaking of Racism podcast. It is still May, therefore Gabe's is still here. I'm Gabe's. I'm hosting you for um, the month of May in honor of Mental Health Awareness Month and Asian Pacific Islander, Asian Pacific American Heritage Month. Thank you for being with me. Today I have the honor, the privilege, the delight to have Sage Kialo Hilani Kiamno on this episode, Sage is an indigenous native Hawaiian, award-winning entrepreneur, speaker, and change maker. Um, as the CEO and co-founder of Future for Us, which is a platform dedicated to advancing women of color, Sage has galvanized a nationwide movement to build a future of work reaching new levels of growth through diversity, equity, and inclusion. And in this conversation, Sage and I talk a lot about her story, her lived experience as a native Hawaiian woman and leader, which is such an empowering conversation. I personally felt empowered by Sage's presence, Sage's work, and just her story. And I also find it valuable to recognize that every time we commemorate Asian Pacific Islander or Asian Pacific American Heritage Month is that there is very little recognition that's given to the peoples, the indigenous peoples of the Pacifica and Oceania. And so I find this episode really important as a way to get to understand or see a glimpse of one of many numerous infinite deep and beautiful stories and difficult stories of the peoples of the Pacifica and Oceania. And so I am deeply grateful and honored to have Sage bless us with our time together. And I truly hope that as you listen, as you take notes, and as you learn, that you actually ask yourself the practical steps about what it's like to participate in the decolonization process. And I mean that in such a nuanced way that you have to take into consideration your intersecting social identities in the contexts of uh, race, gender, sexuality, class, um, ability, etc. And that it might be an intersection of needing to decolonize from internalized and systemic constructs of oppression and also unsettling, you know, unsettling or how do you, especially if you have um, social identities that are privileged, for instance, if you're white and if you're cis, etc., like how do you have a critical analysis an exploration of how much you have been benefiting from the system and participating in the system and therefore how do you dismantle and interrupt the status quo that has normalized oppression and that black and indigenous folks have been most impacted by the systems that you benefit from which does involve critical analysis and also organizing and also figuring out anyway so i can go in different directions with this but What's specific to this episode in particular is how have you been supporting the colonial industry that is the tourism business that is taking place in Hawaii? 
and among other colonial contexts and systems that has been, been contributing and been perpetuating the ongoing violence against the peoples and the land of Hawaii. So I hope that you get to not just take in this episode, learn from this episode, but take the practical and sustainable steps towards decolonization. And if it applies to you, the in, also the intersection of decolonizing and unsettling. So here is my conversation with Sage. I'm so, so grateful that we have, that I have with me, the Sage Kialohilani Kiamno. And I've known Sage for a while now. She is a leader, a pioneer, a presence of um, just deep and immense empowerment to women of color who are entrepreneurs, who are in businesses, um, and also have have had the privilege and honor to also work with Sage in different contexts, um, that which includes um, consulting her for my heritage workshop on ancestral interconnectedness, which is like many moons ago. So I'm really deeply grateful to you, Sage, for being one of the folks who who helped me birth this process. Um, and to begin, I do want to, I, f- I feel like doing this um, in honor of the Pacifica, the peoples and the land of the Pacifica. And that is to ask for consent to pay homage to um, the land and specifically to ask permission from the land. And I'll do that as well. Um, ask permission to do good work with you today. And so would you be able to start us? Yeah, so aloha, everyone. My name is Sage Kealohilani Kiamno. Thank you so much for pronouncing my name so beautifully and correctly. Um, it, it means a lot. Our names mean a lot in Native Hawaiian culture. Um, and, you know, I am currently uh, residing in the illegally occupied territory of Hawaii'ine, um, more specifically on Oahu in Kalihi, where my family has been um been residing for over um, over a century now. Um, so this is a this is a land of my ancestors, um, and one hundred you know one hundred percent coming to you with humility and gratitude, um, and excited for my ancestors to welcome your ancestors. Whether it's you know through this web you know this you know wonderful yeah. technology, um, you know wish we could do this in person. But the fact that know. you know two beautiful brown women could um, come from vastly different places yet connect on on this level of yeah, um, yeah interconnectedness and um, and depth so um, our my ancestors welcome you and super excited to share this space with you today oh wow my body just felt all the things that was beautiful thank you sage and I feel deeply honored and humbled to be welcomed by your ancestors and um, I too um, honor and ask permission from the ancient and recent ancestors of occupied Duwamish territory, which is widely known as Seattle, Washington, that I may do good work with you today. And also um, from my honorable ancestors, it, it, I'm seeing like where I'm sensing like a, an image of them actually like communing together right now, <laughs> not just like the two of us, but also them, maybe they're having like a meal or something. That's They are. That's, Right? <laughs> Maybe adobo yeah, or sinigang or lumpia and all the things. Oh my gosh, yes. So I um, want to, the first prompt that I have 
for you is, and I do this with all of the folks who might interview um, here on this uh, podcast series here on Speaking of Racism, um, and that is kind of like to do a dedication um, and dedicate our time together. And I know that we kind of already did that, and we could, you know, we could just say that they are the folks that we want to honor right now, which we do. And I'm curious if there's like a particular, a specific ancestor or person or non-human animal friend that you'd like to dedicate our time together with. And I'll also share about mine. Amazing. Thank you so much for creating space to dedicate, um, you know, to the important um, and influential folks in our lives. And number one, I would like to dedicate this podcast to my great grandmother, Dorothy Wong. Uh, she was a Chinese immigrant who immigrated from, um, yeah, from mainland China to here. Um, you know, she was the one who primarily raised me. Um, the reason why that I'm here today um, is all because of her um, and a lot of other powerful females in my life. Um, and she sadly passed away about four or five years ago. Uh, but I know I still have, I have a, literally, as I'm talking, I'm looking at a photo of her um, wow. right now. Um, and she's always been guiding me throughout my entire life in terms of my values. Um, and also my, you know, my, my, you know, my dedication to hard work, um, basically. And so I'm dedicating it to her, but also on this, on the other side, um, a living relative is Dr. Kuhuna Vai, Erin Kuhuna Vai Wright. Uh, she is a PhD in education at UCLA, but also an author, a publisher, a Native Hawaiian activist. Um, and she has truly nurtured and also uh, yeah, she nurtured and also brought my activism to life um, at a very young age, around 12, has always um, introduced me to new readings, um, always um, decol decolonized my mind, made me really push my thinking forward. Um, she brought me to every protest out here in Hawaii um, and has really um, helped me invest in my education and but also the full, like the um, how to move our our um, our our people forward as Native Hawaiians. So she has truly inspired me um, as well. So uh, two powerful females in my life that I would like to dedicate this to. Mm. Mm. Honor, honor, honor. Thank you, Sage. Thank you. And even in that, I feel like we've seen like a glimpse. Your relations with them have allowed me, have allowed us to see a glimpse of your story. Um, so thank you for that. And I dedicate my our time together um, to... My Lola, my maternal Lola, my maternal grandma, um, Lola Candy is her name, who um, was a guerrilla warrior, a guerrilla spy specifically, um, during World War II. And she is um, a presence of, um, of valor and courage and um, pride, pride in who she is, um, in a sense of, she was quite a leader. <laughs> So um dedicating my time to her. So thank you. Ooh, thank you, thank you. Okay. Sage, I would love to hear your story. What is it that led you to doing your work? Oh my goodness. Yeah. What is my origin story? Um <laughs> whew, um, I've been telling the story you know hundreds of times and it's always um it's humbling to hear it, you know, when you 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 bring your story to life um, and you realize all the different patterns and also interconnectedness, but to what leads into not only recognizing your gift, but also recognizing um, what your place in this world is supposed to be about. Um, and everything stems back to um, 
you know, childhood, you know, I think I've always been a child who spoke up, um, you know, stood up and spoke up, whether it's within in my own family, my own community, or even in the, um, even at school, I've always been a student government um, officer, always wanted to create um, equity and also change and for the betterment of of the community. And that's what I've learned. Um, everything stemmed up because I grew up in a very, um, I would say multiracial community, um, but also grew up in a very uh, Roman Catholic um, education system, you know, and uh, catechism as everyone, uh, as a lot, most people know, um, can be very um, secular, but also very strict um, in the way that they institutionalize education, but uh, how do you discipline and create um, yeah, how do you discipline young um, young leaders? But how do we grow young leaders in the in the religious sense of of of, of the Catholic teachings? And um, sometimes, you know, the way that it, it, what I realize is as an indigenous, a young indigenous leader, that it often um, there was a lot of tension between indigenous learnings and values versus Catholic values and um, learnings and values. And so, um, you know, I. I I definitely spoke up in high school as a class president. Um, you know, we had uh, class. I had classmates who were pregnant or, you know, members of the LGBTQI community. And this is back in 2005, 2009. And uh, they weren't allowed to be in the yearbook. You know, they were given, they weren't, um, you know, there was specific uh, restrictions if you identified as an LGBTQI member or if you were, you know, pregnant. Um, and so for me, uh, that got into got me into a lot of trouble. Um, I snuck them into yearbook photos. I gave them my polo shirt so they can be in there. Um, but my principal found out, and I I was suspended about five times my senior year um, for speaking up and speaking out uh, for my for my classmates. You know, because I knew at that time it was not right. You know, every single of my classmates, you know, their parents pay $8,000 a year for you to go to school and have a, a quality education, yet because they d identify with who they are, or if they are under certain circumstances, like, you know, if we are living through um, Catholic teachings or Christian teachings, like, we are supposed to be, um, you know, we're supposed to help folks, right? We're supposed to create a world that is equal and be kind and compassionate and empathetic, yet um, I did not see empathy or compassion towards my classmates um, in, in terms of like policies, right? You know, they always refer to this as policies, right? And, you know, that's just another institutionalized way of being, you know, sexist or racist or, you know, um, homophobic. And um, that's when I really, that's when I, it really sparked for me, my journey leading up as a community leader, somebody who is a diversity, equity, inclusion leader in this space. Um, but to really um, move fast forward into now is that I started this because as a woman, young woman of color, I, I was brought to the mainland, the U.S. mainland after college to work at a large tech company in Seattle. People can make guesses from multiple ones. Um, and I experienced racism and sexism at the same time. My yeah. first day at this job, you know, I'm competing. I think a lot of, if, if, it, if you are a techie and you're a person, if you're a BIPOC person in tech, you guys know what that feeling is. Um, you know, you're competing with thousands of people, you know, global talent from across the world. Um, and my, you know, one of my teammates asked me like, what am I, um, on my first day? And so 
you know, that question, what am I, you know, I think, I, I guess I am racially ambiguous, you know, physically. And, you know, I guess, you know, my colleague was a little curious, of, you know, what my ethnicity, what my background, what my culture is, but, you know, already experienced being othered, you know, I think a lot of people can um, relate to that. Um, gave me a really, you know, a feeling of, yeah, otherness uh, at the first day of my new job. And so I really struggled with um, the corporate environment is not, <laughs> it's not for everyone. Um, and so I, you know, experiencing that, then I went into going into, um, you know, the startup scene in Seattle, but it still had a lot at that time, still a lot of very toxic, toxic bro culture. Right. Um, and, you know, experiencing again, you know, um, racism and sexism at the same time. The 2016 election happened. Uh, we know who, and you know, became president at that time. I thought, you know, I, I need to dedicate my time and talent to moving women forward. Um, I've always been, um, you know, I've always been somebody who who was a say um, avid, avid, um, avid. Um, I would say advocate for women because you know, not only am I a woman, but because I was raised by powerful women. Yet society has not given us the, you know, the equity as what we wanted to be. So um, started to move and work for women's organizations, uh, but experiencing a lot of uh, white feminism, um, racism, mm -hmm. um, and understanding that, you know, if we're talking about women, we're not talking about all women, we're specifically talking about white women. Yeah. And there wasn't really a focus or not even a recognition of, you know, women of color need to need different resources, right? I mean, we are um, you know, the fact that there are only two women of color, specifically black female CEOs of Fortune, of, of Fortune 500 companies in the United States is atrocious, you know, um, that 3% of women of color represent corporate boards, you know, only 3%, only two black female CEOs of Fortune 500 companies in the United States of America. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, you know, like that to me is like unacceptable. Uh, women of color are the fastest growing um, segment of degree holders per year. Uh, yet we cannot get into these leadership positions. Um, yes, they're recruiting us and they're, you know, they're retaining us in middle management, but they're not promoting us to the, to the next level. And so, um, you know, seeing that, um, traveling across the U.S., um, teaching salary negotiation classes, I saw in every community, whether it's in Austin, L.A., um, you know, in in New York, women of color were facing so many more challenges, and yet there was no resource for them, for us. Um, so, to be honest, I started this out of anger. You know, I, I really started this out of anger. Um, you know, why are we working twice as much getting half? You know, why are we why are we continuously not being over generations, not being recognized for our work? Um, you know, when I think about these, I think think about powerful women like Stacey Abrams. Right. She lost a huge, unfairly lost a uh, governor race in Georgia. Yet, even though she lost, she's still dedicated to, you know, really uh, to fight voter suppression, but also mm -hmm. to fight for her her state to really um, create equity, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and so she's a person that I always think about, but, you know, I'm also ranting here, but just letting you know, that's where I started this is that, yeah. you know, I have this gift um, of storytelling, but also creating community. Um, and that's what led me to create Future For Us with my former co-founder. It was through, um, through my own failures and my, my own career failures, but also learning from uh, the other 
stories from other women of color from across the U.S. that, you know, we need community. We need more resources. How do we connect um, ourselves together to create change? Mm. Mm. Sage, you are a powerhouse of a woman. And the the theme that keeps coming up for me is the 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 theme of intersectionality, right? Like it's one thing to be a woman in the workplace, but it's another thing to be a woman of color, a black woman in the workplace. And I think that, I don't know what your community is like when it comes to conversations around, you know, the intersecting social identities that are at play. It's just a more complex and also necessary conversation um, especially when it comes to corporate world, especially when it comes to entrepreneurship. And I, I just keep imagining younger Sage too, who is the disruptor, <laughs> who is the advocate, who is the good troublemaker and referencing John Lewis here that, you know, you carried that with you. Um, and gosh, like I am so grateful for the community of women who have inspired you, who have guided you, um, empowering you to also pass on that sense of empowerment to other women, specifically women of color. Mahalo, thank you. Yes, it's been a it's been a journey, a, a short journey, as a, um, a lot of my um, older friends would say, but um, um, a valuable one. A lot of learning lessons, um, you know, doing this work. So thank you, thank you for letting me share. Yeah, for sure. So um, you mentioned that you got to the so-called United States after college. And that must have been like a huge, <laughs> that must have been like a huge adjustment. Cause I just got here. I got here when I was 19, when I was about to get into college. So I'm curious, like how has the so-called United States like shaped your relationship with yourself, with your identity? Um, yeah. How was that for you? Oof, that was a lot of work, you know. Um, it was a big culture shock um, to my system when I first arrived to Seattle, Washington, um, and living on my own for the first time, to be quite frank, you know, um, without my Aina, without my land, without my community, without my Ohana. Um, as you know, Native Hawaiian people are very community forward. Um, you know, we, we work as a unit. Um, and that was the first time I ever, you know, I ever uh, was away from my land and my people and um, with no resources. Right. Um, and trying to make it on my own. And, you know, I, I, you know, I say, you know, I am an indigenous person with indigenous values. Right. But I am still a, a, a I, I, I am still a kid who grew up in the 90s in America you know what I mean? <laughs> with American um I, ideals, right? Because you grow in this, mm-hmm. you know, you there's television, there's media, there's, you know, you, <laughs> there's some, yeah. in the 90s, there's a very, there's a lot of glamorization of, of what America is and American culture is about. And so I grew up with that. Um, and I think moving to the US really showed me um, what American values are all about. You know, it's a lot of uh, individualism, um, you know, and that was a shock to me. Um, you know, for, for example, you know, I think, um, you know, you go to Seattle and you're, you're, you have a tech job. You, it brings all sorts of um, talent from all across the world. And we kind of form groups around, you know, your company, but also like, you know, you're, you're, you're new kids to the city. You start gravitating towards each other. But, um, you know, it was hard because I felt like there was no sense of loyalty. You know, I think uh, uh, Hawaiians, we stick together, right? We make sure everyone gets home safely. People make sure that you, you check in with folks and that kind of wasn't what I saw, you know? Um, and, you know, Seattle is now becoming a growing major metropolitan city. And um, it was tough for me to really learn how to switch on 
my um my alert you know my you know my mm-hmm. my fight or flight unfortunately it triggered my fight or flight kind of um mode because it taught me how to um believe in myself right um mm-hmm. it, it taught me how to um set boundaries um with people um but it also showed me and also like you know uh, hawaiian not you know hawaiians are very generous you know we come with a loving heart um and a lot of, of generosity and so learning how to set boundaries with folks um and it really grounded me in learning um and gave me perspective of um you know uh, uh, growing up i didn't realize how much of a um blessing and a how bountiful my land is and my culture how beautiful my land is and our values and how we still perpetuate till today right even through colonization right um and so being in the u.s for seven years i mean being in the u.s being in seattle um yes because it is a u.s mainland um and i see it as the united states um being in seattle for seven years really taught me perspective of like wow i come from um it gave me such gratitude of like i come from such a beautiful culture um, a beautiful land and I cannot take it for granted. And so that's what the U.S., you know, being in the U.S. really shaped me is that um, on that side is like with my personal development, you know, um, and then on the flip side and growing as an adult woman, right, like growing really into your 20s. Um, but also on the on the flip side, showing me my gratitude to what I have and what I um, in my life and, you know, my upbringing um, and the other flip side is actually meeting a, such a diverse community of, of um, powerhouses, of equity leaders, you know, um, diversity, equity, inclusion leaders, community leaders. Um, it gave me so much big, uh, uh, larger exposure to them, you know, like the leaders uh, in Seattle, like Nikita Oliver. Um, you know, I think um, being in Seattle, I mean, being in Hawaii, you're so isolated from everyone else. Um, and I think when you go to the U.S. mainland, you just get exposed to so many different leaders stories and like that's another flip side it really informed me of um leadership styles um uh stories of other people in the same fight right when i I learned a a lot about the duwamish tribe i learned a lot about um other native peoples across the americas um and their fight right for equity but also land rights and uh indigenous rights and so that kind of opened my mind so that is how the u.s has shaped my relationship with my identity Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I definitely relate to the the part about how I just the strong individualism that goes on around here. And I think mm. that there's a specific culture here in Seattle that um, I didn't get to Seattle right away. I went to I lived in Chicago for a time. And the more that I go to the, the West, <laughs> um, you know, like each so-called state is very different in, in terms of its culture. Um, just the, I, I was looking, I was constantly looking for like the sense of, of just being a collective, being a community, which, um, in the Philippines was a lot stronger, mm. um, and was something that I missed. So I definitely like, um, resonate with that. And also being reminded of that sense of abundance in the land. Cause I feel like mm. here, I feel like scarcity mindset. Exactly. Because that's what capitalism tells you. Capitalism Mm. tells you that, you know, everything is running out. And so you have to compete. You have to, um, you know, outperform because it's all running out. But yeah, to be reminded of of that (laughs) non-Western 
um, indigenous, um, not even mindset, but way of living and way of relating and way of, of, of being that we come from abundance. Um, and I'm curious now that we're talking a lot about land and relations, what does living in colonial structures right now, um, and also seeing the ongoingness of colonialism in Hawaii, um, how do you decolonize um, with whether that may be with your work, with your relations, with your life right now? How is that like for you? This is my favorite question. Um, yeah, like how do you de- decolonize yourself? You know, how do you just de- decolonize your your mindset? Um, for me, how I decolonize is I, I take away the idea of shame. You know, um, I, the idea of shame is is a colonizer's tool for oppression, you know. Um, the Christian missionaries who came here to um, Hawaii um, really used that that tool of shame for, uh, for to us to shame us out of our language, to shame us out of our culture, our our dance, our music, our stories. They they use that that tool um, to re- pretty much oppress us, right? And to I mean it's it's it basically it's cultural genocide. Um, and, and, and to me every day, when I think about, you know, shame, I think of, um, when I make decisions in, whether it's, um, in my business or in life personally, I just think about it as, you know, why are you ashamed to do this? You know, why are you ashamed? Even like, right. You, you, you coming to me with this opportunity to speak on your podcast, you know, um, to be honest, I'm on a hiatus, um, for my work because I've been so burnt out trying to survive this pandemic not only personally, but also business wise. And so, you know, for being on a hiatus for almost like, you know, six months, um, and for you to just welcome me and put me on your podcast, you know, I felt ashamed, like, oh my gosh, like, why would she want to have me on this podcast? I haven't been active or proactive in the, in, in the space for a while, you know, Um, and I've been doing other things, but like that thinking of shame of like, you know, why, why you, right? Like, why are you the one who gets to do these things and speak up and speak out when you do have an opportunity? And I just think of myself, oh my God, that's a colonizer, right? That, that's a, that's the, you know, the hand over the mouth, right? That is the, you know, you're not, you're not, don't speak your truth, right? You know? Um, And so I believe that like the way that I decolonize myself is to think about, you know, the, the idea of shame, right? And I think a lot of us grow up with that idea. Um, and I want everyone to really decolonize that idea of shame and like take opportunities when they're given to you. Uh, and be proud, right? You know, be open to, um, cre- you know, resources and access because I think especially with the women of color in my community, they come to me saying like, oh, like I, you know, like they're just, I'm really, you know, I'm really skeptical in the way that I crowdfund for my business and like asking for people for money when it comes to fundraising or, um, you know, I don't know if I should start this company right now, you know, like, is this the time for that? You know, and I just think, wow, like that is like, you know, the fact that we stop ourselves before we even get started to me is like, that is colonization, right? Mm. Um, You know, Um, and to see these beautiful um, smart, talented, creative women of color who are leader, you know, leader, you know, leaders who stop themselves before they get started. That to me is colonization. I really want all the listeners here um, to understand that shame is a colonizer's tool. And so really think about that 
Um, and I've really done every decision that I try to um, make, whether it's investing and taking the time to talk to someone, whether it's creating, um, you know, social capital for somebody or even my purchasing. I think about how is this contributing back to our community? Is this purchase or is this investment in someone going to contribute back? Um, and that's another way that I decolonize myself is that, all right, am I investing uh, my money, my wealth into another community that is going to come back? Am I making a decision to invest in somebody, right? Like introducing, right? Creating more social capital for somebody. And I know because I know that they're going to support more of our community. Um, so knowing your wealth and also your time and your, your social capital, that's how I decolonize as well. Mm-hmm. Powerful, powerful when you name the shame as the colonizer's mm. tool. Mm. Oof, my my body remembered things <laughs> when you say that. Oh my gosh. And how I never really looked into shame in that context of decolonized frame. Thank you. That is, that's, that could be a dissertation, Sage. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. I wish I was a writer. <laughs> oh, and you, yet, you know, you're a speaker and you are a teacher as well. Like, and to kind of like tie that into the weaponization of Christianity and even Catholicism mm. and how mm. if, if folks are familiar or have some lived experience around spiritual and religious abuse and trauma, like shame was the most effective and, um, ongoing weapon to get people to submit mm-hmm. right to get people mm-hmm. to renounce from you know their previous ways of expressing their spirituality and to submit and also in certain circumstances in the context of colonization um colonized peoples didn't have a choice otherwise they would die or their families would die if they did not mm-hmm. convert mm-hmm. so damn like that seriously i'm probably gonna get into a deep dive in research tonight <laughs> around shame as a, a a colonizers well I don't need research I have you there we go I have you oh no please no get your no no, no. Get, <laughs> get some other things to back you up because don't I'm over like don't listen to me this is something that no. I always think about but thank you thank you yeah well it's it, the thing about research is that it won't take us to what's ancient and what's ancestral yeah it's mm. like I feel like there's so much colon uh, there's so much colonialism in academia and also in what's considered verified information now, and so yeah. I'm actually going to like um like pull back a little bit and actually be conscious. I also love what you said about being uh, mindful about wh- where you invest your your funds, your money to, and. Be and that's something also that you know consumerist cultures, people who exist in consumerist in consumerism and in consumerist cultures don't really take the time to pause and consider: Am I actually supporting a company where the owner is a white supremacist? Mm-hmm. You know, uh, where is this money going to? Like, how is this going to? Like, for for instance, like I have to be when it comes to my wine. Let's say <laughs> I have a favorite type of wine. Who are the owners? You know, who do they support? Who is in their community? So I really, really appreciate the invitation to decolonize by way of mindfully considering, you know, how do I access or get the products, the resources that I have? Who are they supporting? So I appreciate that. 
I'm curious about, I'm very aware of all that is happening in the Pacifica right now, um, as I mentioned, with the ongoingness of colonialism and exploitation of the land and of the people, especially now that, you know, with the pandemic happening, there's been a surge of, of mostly white folks or folks who are not, who do not live in Hawaii, going out there for vacations, Um as a way to quote unquote support the economy with tourism. I'm curious about how you are feeling, reflecting and thinking amidst all that is happening right now there. Yeah. Um, to be Hawaiian is to, is to struggle, you know, to be Hawaiian is to, it's, it's heartbreaking. You know, I think one of my, um, you know, the, one of the, powerful mana wahine is mana means power and mana wahine is like powerful women it's like a it's a term for female leaders in the in the pacific um uh, dr jamaica osorio is a phenomenal leader and i've always been inspired by her um ever since she stepped on stage and spoke her her poetry because she she encapsulized the anger and the um the heartbreak of what it means to be Hawaiian today in modern society. And I've never had anyone really beautifully, you know, um, invoke that or um, express it because I always felt isolated in my own frustration growing up, knowing um, what colonization has done to um, our land, our community, our people, uh, and specifically uh, to my ohana, and so, um, you know, to be back, I've been, I moved back, um, when the pandemic started in March of 2020, uh, I've been living at home with my Ohana for about it's almost, yeah, basically a year now. Um, yeah. I've been here for a year. Um, and I have to say to be real, it's deeply, I mean, it was, um, it was beautiful in the sense of the pandemic really gave, um, the, the Aina, the land breathing room you know, um, seeing the land regenerate, seeing the land, um, be humanless, seeing the land and the, um, and its animals and it's, and the nature just coming back and coming into itself, you know, um, and being available for Hawaiian people, specifically Hawaiian, native Hawaiian people, the stewards of the land, right. Um, the original stewards of the land, um, and to see, you know, Native Hawaiian families on the beach enjoying the the space, you know, because Hawaiians, we don't go to specific beaches because it's a, we claim it as a tourist beach. You know, there's no parking. The beaches are crowded. Um, you know, there's not enough space for us. And the fact that, you know, the, the pandemic has really, um, you know, stopped us in our tracks, right? And it stopped a lot of tourism, right? And it really created space for the for the land to grow and, and thrive and breathe again. You know, it felt like it was a, it was beautiful to see the, um, the Honus, the turtles coming back, the dolphins coming back, um, the coral is regenerating, um, um, all the sea life, the sea monks were coming up to the beach, you know, the Hawaiian sea monks were coming to the beach and giving birth on the beach. And, um, you know, it was a beautiful sight. And for just Hawaiian families to just grow with their kikis and like, enjoy, like, you know, that was, it was a glimpse into what, how it would be, you know, it, how it would be um, back in ancient times, you know, to see our ancestors really um, 
to enjoy and steward the land as it was, you know, as it was. And so um, that was one part of the pandemic. Um, but now on this side of the pandemic where things, you know, people, the vaccination, uh, vaccination has been rolling out, folks are more traveling more. Um, and it's, it's really going back into, um, to, to how it used to be, you know, um, and it's deep, is deeply maddening. It's it's sad because um, Native Hawaiians today are the number one um, population for homelessness, um, number one um, population for you know folks who are going through drug abuse. Um, um, we are the number one. Native Hawaiians are the number one population um, for lower education and um, everything under the sun, health, everything. Um, right. And yet, you know. I like how I, you know, I refer back to a, a black leader who says, you know, everyone wants to be black, but nobody wants to really be black, right? Like everybody wants to be Hawaiian, but not everybody wants to be really Hawaiian, you know, um, because there's there's actual repercussions to being Native Hawaiian. There, these are the effects, right? Um, people really love, you know, like the Japanese are obsessed with our culture, right? Um, U.S. mainlanders are obsessed with the Hawaiian culture, yet they don't really see the ugly side, right? They don't see the actual impacts of what it does to our communities, to Native Hawaiian communities, and also the refusal of our government, our state government, to um, to try different economics, right? Um, not to rely solely on tourism, you know? Um, and so it's uh, it's troublesome when we see, to see these things. And I, as like any major metropolitan city, I can refer back to Seattle, I can refer back to Vancouver in Canada, um, but we see a lot of um, Asian buyers, East Asian buyers come in and purchase a lot of these luxury homes, right? Luxury homes, condos. Um, and we're, 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 we are looking at over millions of dollars, right? Um, but unoccupied. So these are homes that are unoccupied. Um, and yet, you know, I, I, I just drove out to on the west side of Oahu and I met 16-year-old Native Hawaiian boys who are homeless because they're escaping. Mm -hmm abuse right um you know abuse household abuse due to drugs right and to see young kids in 2021 right native hawaiian boys who are you know you know who are who are just at the beach just trying to figure out life right um with no resources you know i asked them you know you know you know is there any family members what can you do it's like no the homeless shelters are full it's covid you know we, we they don't want to pack it too much and you know it's just it's sad and so you know, I see in Hawaii, it's incredible wealth. You know, if you're rich here, you're wealthy here. You know what I mean? Um, we're talking about millionaires and billionaires because this is like the, unfortunately, this is a playground. You know, you see the Zuckerbergs, the Mark Zuckerberg family bought a bunch of land in Kauai. Um, you know, Larry Ellison from the, the founder of Oracle bought an entire island of Lanai. Well, 90, 70% of the, the land in Lanai, even Oprah and Maui. Uh, you know, we're seeing a lot of these billionaires come and purchase a lot of the land. And yet, you know, what are they doing with this land? You know, when our people are suffering, right? When there's a, a lot of Native Hawaiians who are um, are experiencing the impacts of col colonialism, right? Um, and so it's tough because I live here. Um, I, you know, I, I want to create generational wealth for myself and my family, uh, my future. I want to create community, move us forward. Um, but as a young Native Hawaiian, you know, seeing who really occupies, you know, Hawaii's beauty and its land, it's a, it, it doesn't look like it. It's no longer Hawaiians, you know. Um, it's slowly, you know, as we start, you know, moving along, you know, as we start, you know, 
marrying other folks, you know, from different cultures, like our bloodline is, you know, it's coming different now. Um, and so those are the kind of feelings that I'm really, it's really hard, um, tackling because it's just, you know, I think a lot of, a lot of people can, um, relate on this podcast is that your oppressor is in your face every day. You know what I mean? Like you can just see the, the changes, what, who, who's naming the streets, the, the high schools, right? <laughs> um, yeah. but who gets to hold the wealth and the, uh, and the abundance of Hawaii and it's not Native Hawaiian people. And so, um, I'm thinking about that and then what, what is my role here? What's my role in the future? Um, and, and it's hard to tackle a system. So anyways, that's a long, mm. a long it's window. It's hard. Wow. Yeah. It, I'm so, so angry feeling a lot of deep-seated rage around the violence that is happening to you and your people in the land and how this is not a new story. This is not an old, you know, this is has always been the case. And gosh, I just, how do you, and it's true, like it's hard to tackle a system and it takes masses. Um, yeah, I'm just angry. That's really all I could say right now. Um, <laughs> How do you process your rage? How do you, how do you even hope? Because I keep thinking about like, for for colonized sub for folks who have who are colonized and whose ancestors all are also colonized, there's always this narrative, this language around. You know, we came out of it resilient, and that's true. And also at the same time, it's like, it was still costly for us in different degrees, right? In different and mm -hmm. various degrees. Um, very, very costly for us. Uh, I'm curious how you process all of this grief and all of this rage with the state of of Hawaii, with with how your family's doing, how you're doing. That's a great question. I think um I think a lot of indigenous people um especially um can relate to this. It's it it's hard to process grief you know i think a lot of us when if especially if you come from a colonized state you know grief it you know um you know because i i i am also filipino um and i think it's really hard for us to um recognize grief number one <laughs> yeah. to uh to be aware of our grief um process it um be reflective on it um and so i and i'm gonna admit on this podcast i, I do really have a i do struggle in processing grief um, but I do uh, revert back to a lot of my times of uh, my culture um, and how I process grief is is really um, pouring myself back into the community, you know, whether it's supporting uh, Native Hawaiian nonprofits or if it's um, meeting other folks in the community who are doing great, great work. Um, but it also is like going back home to yourself, you mm. know, um, going home back to yourself and and recognizing uh, your gifts, um, giving yourself grace and empathy. Um, because I know so many, <laughs> I know so many um, incredible, incredible activists and leaders like just um, who, who have done their part in this work, in this movement um, to create equity, but also to move Native Hawaiians forward. And, um, and we all know that it's a burden. It's a heavy burden for a lot of leaders. And I, it, it, you can be consumed by anger. You can be consumed by greed and, 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 and 
and sorrow, right? Um, but you know what, to me, what really is the outlet is like through cultural practices, through art, um, through storytelling, uh, through connection, community. Uh, that's how I feed myself. You know, that's how I mm -hmm. replenish myself. That's how I water myself um, mm -hmm. is through that of going home to yourself, but also reconnecting with your roots, reconnecting to the folks that matter to you. Um, and, um, and whatever outlet it is, you know, to be honest, I, I've always, <laughs> um, my way of processing grief is to, um, cause my talent is to really bring community together and host, um, events, you know, bring people together. And so, um, when the Mauna Kea protest happened, um, two years ago in July, so this is when, uh, the state, um, was approving, um, these new te telescopes to be constructed on Mauna Kea and Mauna Kea is a very sacred mountain uh, on the island of, um, of Hawaii. So the big island, as most people would know it as, um, and it was going to be um, sucking up the resources, but also um, being another, another way of colonize, colonizers using the land mm -hmm. um, and not recognizing indigenous space. And, um, mm -hmm. and, you know, and native Hawaiians like Dr. Jamaica Osorio was lay literally laying her, her life on the line you know she actually um tied herself with i don't know if it's a cow cow anyways basically with a with a with a contraption that would pretty much hold them to the ground and they lay their life down on um we call it for the eye of the land mm -hmm. um and it was kind of a calling you know um to every hawaiian around the world to come and meet at mauna kea to stop this um, anyways, when I, after the, after I was able to stay there for two weeks and help my community, um, you know, I came back to Seattle and, um, hosted a fundraiser event. And so that's how I process grief is that I, I, I process grief through doing, I'm an action person. When the pandemic happened and the U S government didn't respond, um, to small businesses and, you know, we lost over 40% of our expected revenue Q1 for future for us. And there was no money, right. And there was no resources. I decided to write an entire uh, medium article about the frustration of the system and why women of color uh, of entrepreneurs are already starting 10 steps behind everyone else, you know, but also like, what's the, you know, what is the answer to, to support more women of color founders, but POC founders of companies, um, but also created a, a directory of grant funds and a list of funds that um, other women of color founders could tap into because I was so angry that not even the government was supporting us at that time. And so I created my own resource directory list for um, funding options. And so, and I noticed when I write, when I write, when I create events, um, that's how I really activate my, um, my grief. That's how I process my grief is because I, I, I need to have an action. I need an action forward thing to do. Um, and that's kind of how I process my grief. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm only, I'm over here. I'm I'm talking and ranting right now because I'm as we oh. speak as I'm speaking and talking to you over this podcast. I'm realizing how I am processing grief. So mm. thank you for giving me this giving me this gift of realizing how I do things. So thank you. Wow. Well, thank you for for thank you for letting me see you. I I remember that fundraiser. I remember that event. You did an astounding job. Um, it was one of the most powerful um, events that I've ever been to. And I've always known you as a, a person who organizes so brilliantly. I, th I feel like this ties well to my next question, now that we're talking about grief and also anger and how that is used as fuel. 
to create, to generate, and to organize. Um, I'm also aware that it's Mental Health Awareness Month. Mm-hmm. And I kind of want to talk about medicine, um, specifically non-Western medicine, like ancestral ancient medicine. And I'm curious, Sage, what do you consider your medicine right now? Yeah, um, my medicine, I know anger. I mean, what I recognize as a leader is that anger is not a sustainable, is not sustainable. And knowing that, you know, as somebody who's operated, <laughs> I'm an Aries <laughs> for the people who like uh, <laughs> astrology. Um, and I'm really a great starter. Um, and so knowing that anger is not going to be feeling you for the next 10 years, but um, knowing where your your boundaries are is such a great way to recognize um, that that's something I struggled with in terms of my mental health. So recognizing your boundaries um, in terms of my in terms of my ancestral medicine right now and what's been healing me um, is being a part of the Aina, being a part of the land. Um, you know, I'm lucky. I'm lucky to uh, to be from here, my ancestors to be from here. And so as everything from. Um, you know, going to the beach, you know, going to the beach um, and swimming, you know, like um, going out and um, canoe paddling. So I, I go on an outrigger canoe and paddling, you know, um, every time I'm in that boat and I'm paddling with four or five other folks, I, I am, I'm pretty much taken back in a time machine and I'm, I'm in motion. I am my, my ancestors. You know, I can see myself. This is what my ancestors did. They traveled across the Pacific Ocean in this vehicle, in this boat. And I am I am doing what they have done for for centuries. And to place myself away from my phone, away from technology, away from everything. But you, it's you, this boat, your people, and the ocean. Like it is such a transformative and gratifying way to meditate, um, to focus, to be mindful. Um, you know, not only does it focus on your breath and your breathing, but also um, synchronicity with your community, with the folks in the boat, um, but also being mindful of the water, right? Everything from the wind, the sun, the mount, like the water, it, it really puts you in this place of it's, it's kind of like in a trance, you know? Um, and it makes you you know, like we talk about breath work, right? There's so much amazing breath work and, um, you know, mindfulness work, right? And I think when I paddle in an outrigger canoe with, with um, other paddlers, it's like, a, it's mesmerizing. And it really has helped me through a lot of my most traumatic uh, moments of my life is to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, so everything from the beach to paddling, uh, to making lanes, so foraging in the in the jungle and collecting, um, you know, flowers or tea leaves and sitting down on the ground, you know, cross legs, you know, like, you know, and you have all the beautiful nature around you and you create a lei, you know, whether it's a lepo'o, so lepo'o is like a haku. Um, some people in the mainland call them flower crowns, <laughs> but they're actually, like, but they're actually lepo'os. Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. And so, um, yeah, I mean, creating, uh, it's something about being, working with your hands. Hawaiians are very action, working with your hands, working outside. Um, that is my medicine. Um, and my third and final ancestral medicine is to chant, you know. Um, um, a big part of our culture is oral tradition. And um, as just as we did a protocol in the beginning of this, um, of this podcast interview, um, before you enter a space, there is a chance that you say to ask permission from the land and your ancestors to enter a space. Um, so every time I go hiking, 
um, into the, a valley or a jungle, or if I'm swimming in a waterfall or a stream or even the beach, I ask, I either do it quietly to myself or I do it um, aloud. Um, and I just center myself before I enter into a space, knowing that I am a guest and not the, and not the whole resident. Um, and I ask permission and that when I chant, I, I feel like my ancestors are with me. Um, and I feel like, um, yeah, it's grounding and it's beautiful. And it, it, again, like just how paddling does for me, it trans transports me to the time of ancient Hawaiian days where, wow, that's like that big, it's the, that connectedness is that, you know, like my ancestors survived um, disease and colonialism, you know, like 10% of us were wiped out by STDs, you know, by an STD. And my ancestors are the 10% that survived, you know. And so every time I meet a Hawaiian, like a, especially a native, like a young native Hawaiian leader, I say, hey, like be proud uh, and really reconnect to your roots because that's the only thing that we have. You know, we don't have, unfortunately, we don't have, we, we have some of our land. We don't have, you know, some of a lot, a lot of it. We don't have the wells, you know. We have all these things, but it's our it's our cultural practices that we still own and that we still can practice, and that's the gift that we have today. Mm -hmm. So that's the medicine that I try to, um, you know, feed myself through through this um through this time right now. Yeah, I felt like as I was listening to you and your medicine, I felt like, I mean, I've, we've been on sacred ground and that became a little bit more apparent to me as you began talking, especially when you said that you are your ancestors in motion, that your ancestors are chanting with you as you chant and just the asking for consent to the land as you enter. It just, I feel, yeah, I feel like we're in sacred space. I feel like both the, the mix of like both the grief for the violence against the land and also the peoples and also some sense of euphoria that there's so much of your culture, of our culture that's been like preserved and also celebrated. And that goes on even in the attempt of erasure from colonization. So really, really, really grateful um, that you shared with us your medicine Sage, it has been an honor and I have been personally inspired and empowered by you. Like seriously, like I don't say that a lot, but I've been really empowered and inspired by you. And I'm, I'm, it also devastates me that it has to come at a cost, you know, an ongoing cost that your ancestors and you had to pay in some sense. And so um, I'm grateful for your beauty. I'm grateful for your resilience and for your wisdom. And you are indeed your ancestors in motion. Like you don't need my approval or my validation from that, but I just, I just feel it. Oh man, mahalo nui. Thank you so much. Um, thank you for humbling me and um, giving me the space to share my story, to share my ancestors' story. Um, you too are indeed a manawahine um, and from my ancestors to yours across from Hawaii to the Philippines. Um, you know, we are brothers and sisters and it's beautiful that we can connect in this way and um, yeah, and share and still, um, still be in existence today. So this is beautiful. Thank you so much. And thank you to Grapes for the music. The song is I Don't Know 